This is They Create Worlds, episode 166, Centauri. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We talked about their meteoric rise and then disastrous fall with the loss of personnel. One guy saying, you know, it's just not worth it anymore. Then they were bought out. You thought that was the whole story. But no, it came back from the dead as an undead zombie, only to rise up in a meteoric joy once more, and then crater again. That is the wonderful company, Centauri, no longer known as Allied Leisure. That's right. In our last episode, we charted the course of Allied Leisure through its early years, from its founding to 1968, through its attempt to make it big in the ball and paddle market, its moves into other areas afterwards that were less successful, and then kind of the final, not complete collapse of the company, but near collapse of the company, perhaps only saved by the fact that it was bought out by the Kaufmans, investors out of Binghampton, New York, who saw potential in the video game around 1979 and decided to buy their way in to this new business. So that's where we are in the middle of 1979. Allied Leisure is doing a little better than it had been in the preceding couple of years. They kind of hit on something for a moment with Cocktail Pinball that allowed them to have slightly better sales than they'd had in years past, but they were still losing money. Now the Kaufmans have come in because they think video games are going to be a big thing, and they've decided that they're going to be able to turn this whole thing around. How exactly do they go about doing that? First of all, they realize that there needs to be a complete reckoning of what's going on at Allied Leisure. They put one of their own people in as uh, vice chairman, Martin Altman, whose job is to kind of take stock and figure out what they have, what they can do something with. Because these guys have done this before. They're kind of turnaround artists, the Kaufmans. They invest in companies sometimes that aren't doing so well and then put measures in place to help them do better. As they start looking through the company, it becomes very apparent that there's a lot of issues. Now, we already talked about this a little bit in the previous episode. We talked about how Allied Leisure didn't have the best track record when it came to reliability. A lot of their initiatives that they had hoped were going to be very successful were often destroyed by the fact that they did not have reliable manufacturing. They do bring in a manufacturing guy, Ken Beck, or Boyk, I'm not sure exactly how he pronounces it, actually, because it's a weird spelling, B-E-U-C-H. But they brought him in. He was a veteran of several coin-op companies. He knew how this business worked. As he started taking stock of what was going on at this 40,000-square-foot factory that the company owned, it became very clear that not all of the 400-plus employees employed by the company actually did anything. Don't know how this situation developed, but do know that when he sent out surveys, he had surveys passed around to get a sense of what people did. 
Some people literally said on the survey that their job was showing up every week to pick up their paycheck. That was literally all they did. That does not sound good. No. So there was a lot of waste going on in employment. The other thing that he noticed, or rather the other thing he turned his attention to, certainly not the first one to notice it, we talked about this before, but Allied Leisure did basically everything in-house. All of the sub-component manufacturing for their product they did in-house, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, in theory, that could work. But as you know yourself from working at a manufacturing company in IT, there are a lot of manufacturing companies that will tend to specialize in doing specific types of component manufacture. They get really good at manufacturing those particular types of components, and they produce a lot of them, which means that they can offer them at a competitive price because they're offering to everybody. So very rarely in the manufacturing business is one company really assembling everything. Because even if you're assembling the finished product, making the finished product, you're probably subcontracting a lot of your parts from someplace else, from another manufacturer that knows exactly how to build that particular kind of widget you need. Right, Jeffrey? Yeah, you have someone who's very good at making a tool or some sort of implement or something that you use in your day-to-day process in order to produce whatever it is you're trying to produce. Absolutely. Allied Leisure wasn't doing that. They were making everything in-house from scratch, and that was a big part of where their reliability issues came from. They couldn't possibly be adept at all of these different forms of manufacturing, and yet they were trying to do it all anyway. The other thing that's really weird, according to Beck, is that whenever they started a new game, they would manufacture everything for that new game all over again completely from scratch, because they did all their manufacturing in-house. However, they weren't paying attention to whether some other old machine that they had been making maybe used some of the same parts that could be reused in the new product. They were having backlog and stock of components piling up in the warehouse that could have been put to use with other games, but wasn't because they would start over from scratch every time they did a new product, at least according to Ken, at least by the time that he was evaluating these things at this point after the Kaufmans bought the company. Can't speak for whether that's true for the entire history of the company back to 1968, but that's what he was finding at this juncture. It's no wonder they had reliability issues. It's no wonder they had cost control issues. The company was a mess. I don't know whose fault that was, whether it was the bronze fault or uh, Mendez, their president, or someone else entirely. I don't know, because we don't have enough insider stuff on the Allied Leisure phase. We just know that when the Kaufmans came in and their people came in, it was kind of a mess. They started cleaning that up. And the good news is because the Kaufmans were conglomerizers, they had a lot of companies under their umbrella. The Kaufmans had some companies that could do some of this component manufacturing. One thing that they did immediately then to be able to make the company more viable is they stopped trying to do everything in-house, but they were also able to get pieces from other Kaufman companies. Those companies still have to make a profit themselves. Their bottom line still has to work out. So it's not like they got free components from other elements of the Kaufman Empire. But it did mean that they could get parts at a really good price and experience the synergy of being part of this operation. So that's kind of one of the first big things is taking stock of manufacturing and just getting that working. The other big thing is they knew they would need someone to run the company. They have Altman there because they need their financial guy on the inside 
that can make sure that costs are being kept under control, that targets are being hit, that's keeping the Kaufmans themselves apprised of what's going on. Altman's not a coin guy. Uh, The Kaufmans certainly are not coin people. So they know that they're going to need someone from within the industry in order to actually run this thing, be the president of the company. The person that they end up bringing in to do that is a person we've mentioned in other contexts before by the name of Ed Miller. Miller at this time is the president of Taito America. He's been with Taito since the early 1970s. He started out actually at the Japanese company, at the parent company in Japan, back before they even had an American operation, and was serving as a buyer over there. Uh, He became very close to the founder of the company, Michael Kogan, who, of course, is not Japanese, but is a Ukrainian Jew that fled during the Russian Revolution. His family fled. He was very young at the time. Then when they started Taito America in 1973... It was uh, Ed Miller that was tapped to run it because he knew the Japanese company very well. He was close to Kogan, and he's American, so of course he knows how to get things started there. In 1979, Taito became one of the very first Japanese companies, not the first, but one of the first, to open an American factory. So before 79, Taito America was a licensing outfit. Of course, their biggest game, Space Invaders, was actually manufactured by Midway. After the success of Space Invaders, they decided that they didn't want to be giving up all of that profit to a contractor, essentially, a a licensee. They actually opened their own factory, so Ed Miller had also been in charge of opening that new Taito factory in 1979. So he had experience with running a factory, as well as, of course, doing sales and marketing and all of that within the coin-op industry. It just so happens that at the time, there was some tension at Taito. I've interviewed Ed Miller, and uh, he didn't go into a lot of detail about this, but there was some grumbling, according to Miller, kind of in the company, about the relationship between him and Kogan. It seems like there were some tensions brewing there. Miller was starting to feel like he was no longer really welcome within the company around this time that this was all happening. It was kind of an awkward situation from the sound of it. He was definitely very much available in that sense. The Kaufmans, I'm sure, I don't know exactly how they knew of him, but I'm sure they were just kind of checking around the industry for who was out there sending out feelers, probably using recruiters, etc. They ended up connecting with Miller, and Miller brought something that was going to be very important to this operation because in addition to his knowledge of the business generally, He had a real in with Japan. Since he had been at the parent company, Taito, in Japan, and since he had been with Taito a long time, he knew a lot of the companies in Japan, and he would be able to harness these connections to bring in some product, because the Kaufmans want to be in video. As we talked about, that wasn't really Allied Leisure's bag at this time. I mean, they'd released some video. Obviously, they'd had success with uh, Paddle Battle, Tennis Tourney, and they'd released some games more recently. But as we talked about in our last episode, it's almost like they were trying to do everything but video. They were trying their hand at slot machines. They were trying their hands at more advanced electromechanical games. They were trying the cocktail pinballs. Video just wasn't something where they had much expertise built up. So they didn't have in-house development. They were going to need to source product from somewhere. And at this time, the best place to source product, if you were a factory like this that wasn't making your own, was Japan. Because in the aftermath of Space Invaders, 
and in the aftermath of Galaxian and some of the other hits that were starting to emerge out of Japan in the United States, there was a huge demand for this Japanese product. The kinds of games that were being made in Japan, which at this point in time were still pre-Pac-Man here, were primarily these space shooters, were the thing that the public in the United States, in North America, and elsewhere in Europe as well, though Allied Leisure here is really focusing on the North American market, the thing that is really in demand here is this Japanese content. The thing is, and we've talked about the Japanese market before, most of these players in the Japanese market are very small players. You have the big three dominant companies, Sega, Taito, and Namco, that are at the top and are both manufacturers and distributors, because there isn't really that three-tiered system in Japan, and are also operators as well. I mean, they don't operate their own games exclusively. They sell to others as well, but they're everywhere on this three-tiered system. They're big companies, and in the case of two out of three of them, Sega and Taito, they have an American presence and an American factory, and they do their own thing. However, the next tier down, there are a lot of very small operations in Japan getting going during this time period. Some of them have their own factory. Some of them don't have their own factory. But even the ones that do have their own factory rely in Japan on sub-licensing agreements with some of the bigger manufacturers, some of the other factories, to actually get their product out. One very good example of this, and one that plays a role a little later on in the uh, Allied Leisure Centauri story as well, is Konami. We did an episode on Konami, and in that episode we explained that Konami, a year or so later than we are now, you know, kind of in the 1981, 80-81 time period, was starting to have some success, but they couldn't keep up with demand with their small factory operation, and so they got in really close with Sega. A lot of their early games were coming out via Sega, both in Japan and in the United States. This is the kind of problem that all of these small Japanese factories had. There was a mutual support infrastructure in Japan that allowed them to thrive in Japan as smaller operations, but they did not have the wherewithal to expand to the United States. Most of them weren't even founding sales offices in the United States. But even the ones that did have sales offices didn't have a factory in the U.S. because that's a big, big operation. You have to buy the land, you have to build a big space, and then you have to hire hundreds of people to do the manufacturing. These small Japanese companies couldn't break into the U.S. market in that way. There were just too many of them. They couldn't all go through Atari or Bally Midway or the Japanese factories that were in the United States, like Sega and Taito. There were so many of these companies in Japan, they couldn't all go through those companies because all of these companies only have so much factory capacity. They can't be building a dozen games at once. There was a real vacuum here for a company that wanted to work with some of the lesser or smaller Japanese companies and bring that product to the United States where it was guaranteed to sell because nobody could get enough of this stuff in this time period. By bringing in Ed Miller to run the company, they weren't just getting an experienced coin man that knew how to run a factory and knew how to do sales and marketing in the American market. They were getting somebody that knew Japan, knew these developers, and could perhaps even steal a march on some of the American companies like Bally Midway that maybe didn't know Japan as well as he did. He could get to some of these little companies with these interesting products and get those licensed into Allied Leisure before a Midway or an Atari 
He even knew what was going on. So they made him a very generous offer, 80000 a year in 1980 money, stock options, 100,000 shares at 50 cents each. Allied Leisure shares weren't worth much at this time because they weren't doing much, but if the company could turn around under Miller, those shares that he was acquiring so cheaply could have been worth a whole lot of money. And a bonus of 1% of the company's pre-tax net income for all sales in excess of $500,000. With the troubles he was having at Taito, with kind of the tense situation there, combined with the incredibly generous package he was given to jump ship, Ed Miller in April 1980 joined Allied Leisure as the new president. And he didn't come alone. He brought a lot of people with him. The most important person he brought with him was Bill Ologis, who we talked about in the last episode. This is just a coincidental connection between Allied Leisure and Ologis, but we may recall that it was Bill Ologis's company, URL, that created Paddle Battle, the Pong game that did so well for Allied Leisure. Now, Ologis had nothing to do with URL anymore. There'd been a lot of issues with URL. It had been bought out by somebody else finally. Ologis was actually at Taito. He had just joined Taito not that long before this. It's a coincidence that it happened to be the guy that built Paddle Battle ended up being the guy that came to help run R&D with an, an engineering with Miller. But that's what happened. So Miller and Ologis come in to be the coin men running the company, though Miller's the one in charge. They also bring a lot of developers from Taito with them because Taito had been in the process of establishing uh, American development. So they brought a lot of developers as well that were up in Bensonville, Illinois. We may recall from last episode that Allied Leisure is in Florida, in the Miami area. It's a kind of far-flung subsidiary, but they have an internal development capacity now. Up in Bensonville, Illinois, they have this management team from Taito that kind of knows the business. They've been taking stock. They've been reorganizing the way manufacturing works, hopefully getting the quality up. So there's just one final very important thing to do. I think you can probably guess what that is, Jeffrey, from everything that we've talked about last time and this time. They need to come up with a snappy new name in order to express that this isn't Allied Loser. <laughs> this is a completely new company, a full new century of wonderful content that is looking forward to a bright future. That's right. They need a name that fits in with the exciting times of the year of the fruit bat. Bonus points if you get that reference. <laughs> yeah, they have to, exactly like you said, they have to uh, shed that Allied Leisure name, which is mud in the industry, because they are called Allied Loser. It's not just a tainted name because the sales have been bad. It's a tainted name because it's been made fun of. And once your name's been made fun of, I mean, it's, it's done. You're done. They need a new name. So they go and do what a lot of companies in this situation do. Uh, you know, they went to a marketing PR firm and were like, give us some ideas for a new name. We need to rebrand ourselves. You know, it's going to be the same company. We're not talking about folding Allied Leisure and starting something new. It is very much the same company, but it's going to have to have a new name. So they were given a few choices. One that they liked the best of the choices they were given was Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri, of course, being the closest, I believe, the closest star to our own star, one of the brightest in the sky as a result. It's nice. It's a bright star in the sky. Space is futuristic. The whole industry is obsessed with space after space invaders. Alpha Centauri sounds pretty good, except for one thing, one important thing. The Kaufmans don't want a two-word name. They think that is too complicated. They want something snappier. They want it done in one. 
they decided to choose a name that evoked kind of the same feeling as Alpha Centauri, but one word. They decide to kind of change that to Centauri, which still vaguely sounds like something you'd see in space. Still sounds vaguely futuristic and cool. I don't know. For me, I think of Roman legionaries, like a centurion. Exactly. There's the Latin there. So there's certainly a little element of that as well. Absolutely. So they go with Centauri. On July 29th, 1980, just a few months after Miller shows up, they officially change the name of the company to Centauri. Still the exact same firm, just under a different name. So now they're completely reinvented. New management, new manufacturing, new name, new ownership, new everything. Now we need some games. So they've got this in-house team that is going to be able to get them some stuff, hopefully, theoretically, up in Illinois. But of course, they need product now. They can't just wait on that. They start out by leveraging their know-how in the cocktail business already. You know, they've been doing these cocktail pinballs. So they start out by doing just some very quick licenses of products of other companies, then doing cocktail table versions of them. This gives them some quick cash. This gets them some product in the pipeline that they don't have to think about too much. They license the game Ripoff from Cinematronics, kind of a tank game, overhead view. And they license Targ from Exidy, which is another overhead view kind of vehicular shooting kind of game. And do cocktail table versions, because obviously those companies are manufacturing the games themselves. They're not going to give them rights to do the uprights, but they're not making cocktails. So they might as well allow Centauri, Allied Leisure slash Centauri, to make cocktail versions of those games, because it gets them into some venues that their games aren't getting into. They get a little bit of licensing revenue. Centauri gets some revenue coming in to jumpstart things. Everybody's happy. So about July 1980, ripoff cocktail comes out, and about September, Targ cocktail version comes out. Meanwhile, Miller is starting to work those contacts in Japan. In a lot of the articles at the time, Miller is actually given credit for being the one that brought Space Invaders over to the United States because they were really selling him. Centauri really wanted to sell him when they were talking to the trades, when they were talking to analysts and investors, as this guy that knew the Japanese market better than anyone else because they felt that that was going to be their way in. In point of fact, that's not actually true. I know this because I've talked to Miller. I've interviewed Miller. Now, there's no doubt that he was at Taito, America, when Space Invaders came out. I mean, he was at the company. But the way that the trades tried to portray it, the way Centauri tried to portray it, was he was the guy that on a trip back to Japan noticed this little game that his parent company in Taito in Japan was doing called Space Invaders and was like, we must bring that to the United States. No, that's not true. Taito knew what they had with Space Invaders. It was coming to the United States. Miller obviously deserves credit for helping get that license to Midway and, and helping everything go smoothly, but he's not actually the one that brought it over. But that just goes to show the image they wanted to project of this company knowledgeable about the Japanese side of the industry. But he was knowledgeable, and so he did get to work and was able to bring in a series of absolutely stellar games in late 1980 through 1981 that completely turned around the company. I mean, night and day turnaround. There were four that were particularly important, and we'll go into each of those in turn. And those were Eagle, Phoenix, Pleiades, and Vanguard. The four games that Centauri is definitely most well-known for, all of which, of course, are licensed. All of which came from Japan. Eagle was the first of these that was released. It was released before the end of 1980. 
Eagle was a slight modification of a game from Nichibitsu called Moon Cresta. In this period of time, we have to kind of take a step back. As I had said before, the space games were really, really big, the space shooters, because space invaders had just blown up huge, bigger than anyone had ever seen anything before, except maybe the very beginnings of pinball in the 1930s. So there was this real demand for this kind of game. And there was a quick, there was a very rapid advancement of this kind of game. And actually, these four games that we're talking about here, Eagle, Phoenix, Pleiades, and Vanguard, actually show a lot of that progression. So that's why it's good to take a step back and take a moment to see what's going on with these games and how Centauri fits into this. Space Invaders, as we know, don't need to go crazy on this. Gun battery at the bottom of the screen, bunkers, solid rows of aliens descending line by line. That's the beginning. Then comes Namco's Galaxian, which is still gun battery, or actually in this case spaceship, because it's an open space, not on the surface of a planet. Spaceship, bottom of the screen, no more bunkers, nowhere to hide, still a big formation of enemies at the top of the screen, but instead of descending line by line, individual enemy ships break off out of formation and dive at the player. The next step is the step that's epitomized by Mooncresta slash Eagle and a few other games of the time which is still open space, still gun battery or spaceship. I keep saying gun battery, but I should be saying spaceship outside of Space Invaders. Spaceship at the bottom of the screen, but instead of a solid block of enemies, you have differing waves of enemies that are doing all sorts of their own crazy looping, swirling kinds of patterns. Harder to track, harder to hit, more likely to shoot you. You know, these games are progressively getting harder more sophisticated. The graphics are also getting slightly better as time goes on. We're starting to see different waves of enemies. It's almost like they're different, you know, stages. It's kind of a prototypical stage, no pun intended, in the development of these shooters when you don't really have distinct levels yet, but you're getting differing waves of ships. It's not just the same thing over and over again, going faster and faster. Instead, you repeat about the same three, four, or five things over and over again faster and faster. Still no end to the games. There is some interesting little transition points. I saw, as I'm looking at Eagle here, Mm -hmm. the ship has a transition moment where you dock with a bigger thing, and then that gives you some more guns. Then after Mm -hmm. you get over whatever you're getting over, then you launch just like a shuttlecraft for a bit. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. So that was the hook that Mooncrest slash Eagle had specifically which is this ability to stack multiple stages onto your ship and get double and then triple, because I think it's three stages total, double and triple the firepower as the game goes on. That was the hook that made that one particularly popular. Mooncresta was a decent success in Japan. I mean, it was no Space Invaders or Galaxian, but it was definitely a success. Nichibitsu is one of these tiny companies that I was talking about, one of these very small Japanese companies that didn't have the capability to bring its own stuff over to the United States, but had a good hit product. Ed Miller knows these guys because he knows Japan, so he's able to get a deal, and they get Eagle, which is slightly modified. I, I don't know where it was modified. I don't know if Centauri modified it itself or if Nichibitsu made a specific version for the American release. There's a lot of unknowns when it comes to some of the development of this very early Japanese stuff, at least in English language sources. So Eagle is not quite exactly the same game as Mooncresta, 
but the differences are very, very small. It's not like it's a different game. It, it really is Mooncrest with just a few modifications. So they do Eagle. Then comes the big one, the biggest of all of these games. And that game is Phoenix. Looks pretty, I'll give you that. <laughs> the story of Phoenix is confusing, and we don't know it, and it's very unknown. We still don't really quite exactly know who did Phoenix. Centauri was actually not the first company to license the game. Centauri licensed the game from another American company, Amstar Electronics. Amstar was a semiconductor company down in Arizona. Coincidentally, and I really do think coincidentally, in the Phoenix area, there's no indication that Phoenix was actually named because Amstar was in Phoenix. But they, like so many companies, decided that this video game thing after Space Invaders was getting hot, and so since they were already an electronics company, had expertise, they decided to get into the video game business by purchasing Merco Games, which was a very small, very minor 1970s coin-operated game manufacturer in Arizona, which is why Amstar would be interested in it. Amstar got in by purchasing Merco, but they didn't end up releasing very much on their own. We don't really know the story of Amstar. I mean, we really don't. I don't know why they decided that that wasn't for them, but for whatever reason, they acquired the rights to Phoenix, and we don't know how, and then decided that they didn't want to manufacture it themselves. So then Centauri got the rights to the game, licensed to the game from Amstar. But Amstar is not the creator of the game. The game is definitely Japanese, but we don't know for certain who it was. It was probably a company by the name of Hiraoka. There's indication in some Japanese sources that Hiraoka was a company that created this game. Centauri later licensed another game from Hiroka. It's an unimportant game. That's why I bring it up now. It's a game called Roundup, which didn't do anything. But Centauri licensed another game from them later, so we know they made games. In Japan, it was released by Taito. Again, Taito was not the creator of the game, almost certainly not the creator. It's just that they had the rights, and Taito has the rights to the game today. It's appeared on various Taito compilations. So it's probably this Hiraoka company that created it that we don't really know anything about. But then it came to Amstar, and from Amstar, it came to Centauri. Phoenix did a couple of things that were kind of new and exciting in this very early phase of development in this whole idea of shooting games that were evolving very rapidly. First, as you said, it did look pretty. Much more detailed background. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Second is, it had uh, certain waves of enemies. It had some of these swirly uh, waves, very similar to what Eagle had. Several of the waves involved these larger bird creatures that could potentially take multiple hits to kill. If you hit it dead on, it killed it. But if you hit it in, on the wings on either side, it would just partially damage it and it would keep coming after you. Anyone who's played Demon Attack on the Atari VCS 2600, Demon Attack was very much inspired by these bird waves, these big bird waves in the game Phoenix. The other interesting thing it did is it had one of the very first what is considered to be a boss enemy in a video game. Because at the very end, the very last stage, and I mean, there is no end to the game, because recall, this is a period of time when games just cycle over and over and over. When you complete the game, quote-unquote complete the game, you just start over again. The final wave, the final stage, was a giant mothership. 
basically there was this thing, alien or whatever, right in the middle of the ship. You had to blow away the hole and the shielding and everything around this thing right in the middle of the ship, which took a lot of hits, in order to kill it and clear the level and quote-unquote beat the game. Though, like I said, there's actually no win condition. You just repeat over afterwards. I'm looking at this boss battle now. It's really kind of interesting here. It kind of reminds me of almost Space Invaders in reverse. Mm -hmm. You have the ship very, very slowly inching down the screen. So eventually, if you do not take this thing out, it will just hit you and you're gone. Yep. You're eating away, as you said, the shield, but it's almost like you're eating away at the hull or those bunkers that you shoot through. Yep, absolutely. In the example I'm looking at right now, the guy's trying to get some of the side stuff away and then trying to shoot as often as he can right down the center towards the little dancing alien guy in the middle. Once he hits the dancing guy in the middle enough times, kaboom, the whole thing goes up. Absolutely. Definitely is interesting as probably one of the first boss-like things in that, this kind of development. And it just gives you a thousand points, which kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You think for that, you give 10,000 points. <laughs> right. People were still figuring that kind of thing out, but it really was in a lot of ways the first boss. I mean, it's not like it was marketed that way. I mean, it's kind of a retroactive thing to consider that a boss, but it was it was one of the first things that you could consider a boss in a video game. Not quite the very first, but so, you know, that was an interesting development. You know, with these distinctive graphics, with these new challenges, ships that take multiple hits to kill, the giant mothership, which is something new. This game captured the imagination of the public that had already loved Space Invaders and already loved Galaxian. Now, there's diminishing returns because space games are old hat now. There are lots of companies releasing space games. So the days when you can sell 60,000 of a Space Invaders or a 45,000 of a Galaxian in the United States are gone. But the game is still a gigantic hit. They sell 15,000 units. In fiscal 1981, it provides 43% of Centauri's revenues all by itself. This is the big one. More than anything else, this is the game that turns the company around, though it's not the only game they released that year that does very well, because we still do have to talk about the other two. The next game was Pleiades. Or Pleiades. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's a cluster of stars that's named for. Again, it was another small Japanese company that didn't really have any kind of inroad into the United States, and that's Tacon. Today, people would more recognize the company Tacon as Tecmo, because they changed their name a few years later to Tecmo. Now, of course, still exists today in the merged form of the company Koei Tecmo, because they merged with Koei. Pleiades was marketed by Centauri, it looks like, as kind of a sequel to Phoenix, because it had very similar gameplay. I don't think it was actually, I mean, again, with all this Japanese stuff at this time, it can get a little vague, but I don't think it was actually a sequel to Phoenix. It was just a convenient way to market it because they were very similar in a lot of different ways. You know, Phoenix was a big hit, so of course they want to tie in this idea that they're creating something else. But, you know, it's completely different companies that made it. Phoenix was made by Hiraoka or whoever it was made by. It definitely wasn't made by Takeon. It's not actually a sequel. Again, it does this thing where it has multiple different challenges. We're starting to see more of these games that are evolving distinct stages, almost, even though they're not necessarily identified as like stage 1-1, stage 1-2, or whatever, as games would be a few years later. You're getting to the point where you have distinct stages evolving. So it's another fixed shooter, but it takes us through various 
ideas of what this is. So it starts out, it actually starts out on the planet's surface. It starts out in a more space invaders feel, though it doesn't have the bunkers, it doesn't have the solid wave of enemies, but with the graphics and everything, which again, are becoming just a little more detailed every time we do this. You know, you kind of start on a surface, and then you go off into space and shoot more waves, and then you get a mothership. Very similar to a Phoenix. It's a much smaller ship. It's a little different in characterization, but it's essentially the same kind of big boss fight as Phoenix has. But then, after that, you even have one more challenge you have to do, because you then get this kind of weird, tilted-angled view, almost like Radar Scope, the Nintendo game. It's not a shooting stage. You have to guide your ship up this path, dodging these other ships that are on the plane here, and reach a target at the far end of the screen in order to complete the mission and quote-unquote complete the game. Though, again, as always, you just start over again. How does game sort of seem to play? And I've looked through the entire cycle here. Mm -hmm. You start off on a planet. Yep. You've got a cityscape here. You actually have little radar dishes that actually move, which is kind of cool. Then you have your waves coming down, attacking the city. Then the city goes from day to night and then back to day, which is another little cool aspect to it, I think having sort of a day-night cycle. Mm -hmm. Then after you're done with the waves, you launch off to go take on the enemy. Yay, we're taking on the enemy. (laughs) Lots of horrible things get shot at. And then eventually we do get to that good old mothership. Mothership is much, much smaller than the other one, but it takes a lot more hits to take it out. And it has sort of like heat-seeking missiles that try to shoot at you. It actually does a color damage thing, too, from the looks of it. Mm-hmm. The final thing, what you're saying there was the sort of like tilted angle thing, it's actually going back down to where you started the game. I think it's trying to portray, hey, you're landing your ship on the planet going back to the start again. You're going down there, you're trying to land your ship, not hit anything else and then hit the target in order to land appropriately. And then you end up exactly where you start. Mm-hmm. Some fireworks go off at night and then, oh, look, they're invading again. We have to go through it all over again. <laughs> Repeat ad nauseum. Absolutely. So you're seeing that these games are starting to develop very slowly a sense of progression and a sense of narrative to them. It's long in terms of releases, very short in terms of years, because this is moving so quickly, but it's a long progression through a variety of games. But we're seeing how this whole idea of how to do an arcade video game is evolving from single screen full of enemies repeated forever to differing waves of enemies repeated forever, like in Eagle, to differing waves repeated forever, but you have the sense that you've reached a conclusion with something like a mothership in Phoenix to a series of waves again in Pleiades, but it feels like there's almost a narrative under the surface of the thing because you're moving through these very, very different zones, and it feels like there's a progression that you're making across a narrative, even though there isn't actually any story as part of it. Centauri is is at the heart of this with all of these games. Then the final one in the series that we wanted to mention, and their second biggest success of this time period after Phoenix, is the game Vanguard. Once again, we're talking about the same kind of pattern here, which is Centauri, because of Ed Miller and his good connections, knows these smaller companies. And so here's another smaller Japanese company, in this case, a Shin Nihon Kikaku, which would later be known by the acronym of those three uh, words, SNK, that is having some success and doesn't have an outlet in the United States. And so Centauri licenses the product Vanguard. Vanguard is a complete ripoff, as were several games in this time period, of Konami's massive hit, Scramble. 
We talked about Scramble in our Konami episode, but Scramble was the first game that you could truly consider a scrolling shoot 'em up. Not the first game that had shooting game that had any kind of scrolling, and it's not even the first one that had a larger world that you moved through because uh, Defender from Williams had that. Scramble's the one that first had all of those elements together, which is you have a horizontally, in the case of Scramble, scrolling playfield. You have forced scrolling, which means your ship keeps moving ever forward, no matter what. There's enemies coming at you, you have to shoot. There's targets on the ground that you have to bomb. And it takes place in kind of these caverns. And so you also have to make sure you don't hit the ceiling or the floor, collide with that, and die. It's kind of the very prototypical scrolling shooter. It was such a big hit that a lot of Japanese companies copied it. Some companies just straight up cloned it. Other companies that were a little more reputable, including SNK, copied the major elements of it, but actually did create their own unique game. Vanguard actually did some interesting things in it that did really build on what Scramble did. It wasn't a straight 100% ripoff. For one thing, it allowed you to shoot in four directions, which was very interesting. You could shoot forward, back, up, and down. In Scramble, you had a laser that you could shoot just straight ahead of you to shoot things in the air, and then you could bomb things on the ground. You had a separate fire button to do some bombing on the ground, but it didn't have this four-way shoot-all-around-you capability that Vanguard did, so that's kind of cool. Another thing that it did is it combined horizontal and vertical sections, so it's a side-view game. It's not an overhead game. Sometimes, as in Scramble, you're just going straight left or right. But other times you're also going up or going diagonally up as well. So there's a little more variety. It does take place in these enclosed spaces, just like Scramble does. I mean, that's something it's borrowing from, and it's not in open space. You're flying through these caverns and fortresses, so you can, you know, hit the ceiling and die, just like you can in Scramble. On top of these gameplay innovations, it had a really interesting soundtrack that was entirely not licensed and violating all sorts of copyright laws. It used the theme, for instance, from Star Trek The Motion Picture, which today people would probably more closely associate with also being the theme of Star Trek The Next Generation. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da! That theme. It also used Voltan's theme from the Flash Gordon movie that had been released in 1980 and that very famously had a soundtrack from Queen. So it had some really bopping tunes at a time when elaborate music in video games was still pretty rare. It had this hot new gameplay of the type that Scramble had, but with a few twists to keep it interesting. And it had that same sense of progression. You're progressing through multiple zones, and it even identifies them as zones. The mountain zone, the stick zone, the stripe zone, the rainbow zone, the bleak zone. The first few are horizontal, just like Scramble. Then you get a diagonal one. Then you get the vertical one, like I said. Then you end up having to destroy this energy core in the middle of the base kind of thing, which is exactly what you had to do in Scramble as well. So it has this sense of progression, though, again, there's no ending. That's the same with all of these games, even the ones like Pleiades or like Scramble or like Vanguard that have a sense of progression through multiple stages. There's no, yay, you won, game over kind of screen. It's okay, now go back and do the whole thing again, except maybe a little faster, a little harder. We don't know exactly how much it's sold, but just based on dissecting the annual reports of Centauri... And uh, the typical price of games, Keith Smith, coin-op historian, estimates that it probably sold around 10,000 units. So you had Phoenix at the top, which sold 15, and that's straight from Centauri itself said it sold 15. So that's a a confirmed figure, 15,000 units. Yeah, Vanguard probably selling around 10. Pleiades probably sold around 5,000 units, give or take. 
Eagle probably sold a couple thousand units less than that. It was the least successful of the four. It was also the earliest of the fours. Centauri hadn't quite made its name back yet at the time it came out. When you take these four products together, they released a couple of other things from in-house, like uh, Challenger and Killer Comet, but they flopped. Nobody cared. But with these four games doing so well, in 1981, they just blew up. So in 1980, which we have to recall is this very transitional year, because they've got the new management in, they're starting to license a couple of video games to get out, but they're still rebuilding themselves. According to the company's annual reports, in 1980, they had sales of 5.9 million, which was actually a few hundred thousand less than 79, but it was in the same ballpark. They were essentially flat. But they had a loss, and remember, they've been losing money for years at this point, of 4.5 million. They sold about 3,730 games. Well, not about. That is what they sold. That's what they reported that they sold. This was fewer than in 1979, which, as we said, was a year where they rebounded a little bit through those cocktail pinballs, but it still wasn't a great year. They still lost money. So that's 1980. Fiscal 1981, and I believe their fiscal years end in October. So this is the period from October 1980, or rather November 1980, to October 1981. They sold 31,451 games of which roughly half were Phoenix. Almost a tenfold increase in games sold from 1980. Their sales climbed to 61.5 million, which was a more than tenfold increase from their sales in 1980. And instead of losing 4.5 million, they had a profit of 7.5 million, an over $10 million swing in profits from the negative to the positive. This made Centauri one of the top six coin-operated video game manufacturers in the United States. Now, they were at the bottom. At the top were Atari and Midway, then Williams, then Stern Electronics, which we've talked about before. Then Sega and Centauri were neck and neck. Both of them had about $60 million in sales. That's much less than the big boys at the very top, which were in the hundred millions. $60 $60 million was nothing to sneeze at, and it did make them a major player in this industry. There's just kind of one problem. Now they had to do it all over again, except that their in-house development up in Bensonville had been disastrous. The games didn't do that well. Now everybody knows about these Japanese companies, so they're going to have more competition for the games. They won't necessarily be able to steal a march on them. They're still kind of small potatoes compared to everybody else. So this turnaround in 1981 is remarkable, but it's not necessarily going to hold. Where do you go from there if you're the Kaufmans? Well, first of all, we have to remember that the Kaufmans are not wedded specifically to video games. They are diversified. They're in all sorts of businesses. They don't necessarily see the success of Centauri as a sign that they need to go all in on video games specifically. What they do see is they see a sign that now they can reinvest some of these profits that they've made in video games into other areas. So they actually start buying some companies that have absolutely nothing to do with Centauri's core business. They're basically starting to form another conglomerate 
within this company that is part of their larger conglomerate. Almost like multi-level marketing. Keep bringing in new and new companies. Hope you can keep bringing in more. For instance, in September 1982, they buy a company called Outdoor Sports Headquarters, which is nothing to do with video games, coin-operated games, anything. It's a wholesale distributor of hunting, fishing, camping, marine, and archery equipment. I guess you could kind of vaguely say that at least it's still in the leisure business, but outdoor leisure is a completely different kind of leisure. They also have a small number of retail stores. They're primarily distributor, but they also have some retail stores in Ohio and Indiana. So they're a Midwest company, too. Remember, as we've said, Centauri's in Florida. I mean, this is completely different, but we have to remember the Kaufmans are conglomerizers. So they've got this money coming in from these video games. For them, what you do with that is you invest it into other areas that look like they are going to be big. So they saw this as a great opportunity, so they add this company to Centauri, using some of those profits from all of those video games. Not in this time period, but just a little later on, like by 1984, skipping ahead a little, but just to kind of give an idea, they buy Capes Seafood, which is a wholesaler of packaged seafood products. Well, you need to take food with you when you go camping. I guess. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's getting further and further removed, but this is what they see the point of this. They wanted to get into video games because they could see that video games were going to be a hot entertainment field, but they're not video game people. They're not necessarily interested in that area solely. This is something that Ed Miller very much gets the sense of and decides to leave. He got the sense, and it was a correct sense, that they were not really dedicated to this whole coin-op thing. That really wasn't their end game. That was his business. He didn't want to be involved in all of this other weird stuff that they're doing. So he ends up leaving the company in 1982. He is replaced by a gentleman by the name of Arnold Kamenkow. For those that are really into pinball, the name Kamenkow may sound very familiar because of Joe Kamenkow who was at Data East Sega Pinball as a partner with uh, Gary Stern for a very long time. Arnold is actually Joe Kamenkow's father. Arnold came out of distribution. He was at some big distributors of coin-operated games. He's brought in in 1982 to run the company. They also closed down the internal development because it never really went anywhere. The, The internal games didn't make much money. It wasn't worth it. They had also, I didn't mention this, but we'll mention it now, they had also decided to get into the jukebox business with their internal people. The reason they did that, it's the same reason that uh, their competitor Stern Electronics did as well, is you know the jukebox business had basically been dying in the 1970s, and so there had not been a lot of innovation in jukeboxes. Now that the technology had progressed a little bit and there was some more digital and video technology that you could put into traditional jukeboxes, there was this thought, the same thought that Stern and Centuri both had, that you could use some of this new, more interesting technology to make better, more interesting jukeboxes and perhaps try to bring back the market. Well, that didn't work. Didn't work for Stern. Didn't work for Centuri. Ironically, jukeboxes, you know, in the modern period have kind of come back in a way, though, I mean, they're not jukeboxes anymore. There's these 
gigantic iTunes playlist machines. But it's, it's essentially fulfilling the same role that the jukebox used to fulfill. But the jukebox's day was done. I mean, it was a combination of things. It was uh, piped-in music from uh, centralized sound systems, like when you go to the supermarket today, you know, and there's always music playing. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. You know, that was being used in bars and restaurants as well. I mean, still used in, in bars and restaurants today. So that had kind of replaced jukeboxes a little bit. Karaoke to various degrees. I mean, it, in this period, it wasn't hitting big in the U.S. yet, but it was definitely hitting big in Japan and would eventually come to the U.S. Karaoke encroached on jukeboxes and just television encroached on jukeboxes. Bars more and more were having TVs and people were watching sports rather than putting money in jukeboxes. It's not like jukeboxes vanished after the 1970s. You know, they continued to exist in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. Like I said, today, in spirit, they continue to exist in these big digital iTunes-style machines with thousands of songs in them. The heyday was over. Putting some video technology and some more advanced technology in them wasn't going to do anything. So the jukebox thing didn't work. The internally developed games didn't work. So they closed down Bensonville. Bill Ologis and his people were told they were no longer needed. Ed Miller left, replaced by the distributor Arnold Kamenkow. The challenge now is they they really can't maintain this in 1982. I mean, they had this string of hit Japanese games, but, you know, whatever march they stole on the rest of the industry, they don't have it anymore. The big boys know about the take-ons of the world and the S&Ks of the world. Centauri isn't necessarily going to be able to get this same quality of games. And in fact, in 1982, they're kind of forced to go elsewhere. They do release a couple of Japanese games, like Roundup, the game that I mentioned earlier that was also done by Hirooka, but they were very minor games that didn't do anything. They end up going to Europe to try to replicate the success they had with bringing in smaller Japanese games. They went to a small Italian company called Olympia and licensed a game called D-Day. It just wasn't very good. They went to Xilek in the United Kingdom and licensed a game that had a little more success by the name of The Pit, which is actually very interesting. It was created by a company called AW Electronics, and then Xilek was the company that actually manufactured it in the United Kingdom. What happened when they were working on their previous game, which had been a shooter game, a Defender-style game, they had a glitch that would cause the graphics to kind of smear across the screen and make it look like the ground was being dug into. And they thought, hey, this looks kind of cool. We should make a game that's based around digging into the ground dealing with enemies and stuff in the ground. And so they made this game The Pit. If people are thinking at this point, well, geez, that sounds a lot like Dig Dug. The interesting thing is there may be a connection between The Pit and Dig Dug. The Pit came out first. The Pit is an earlier game than Dig Dug, so it's not a clone of Dig Dug. According to Andy Walker, the principal at AW Electronics, AW Andy Walker, when they were showing the game at a trade show, it attracted a great deal of interest from some Japanese engineers that he believes, Walker believes, were from Namco. Originally, this game, The Pit, was going to have a final confrontation with a dragon, a grand dragon. So at this trade show with these Japanese developers, probably from Namco, that he was talking to, he was kind of trying to explain to them that you would dig and find this dragon then you would blow up the dragon. Blow up is in big explosion, right? Well, with the language barrier, the Japanese developers, according to Andy Walker, this is his story of it, thought that he was talking about blow up as in inflating something. 
He says that the Japanese engineer even kind of gave him this look, like this kind of odd look, and then made a gesture like something expanding and then going boom. According to Andy Walker, they thought he was talking about a dragon that you would inflate until it blows up, until it explodes. Have you ever played a game, Jeffrey, from a company called Namco that involves digging in the dirt and then blowing up dragons, inflating dragons until they explode? Dig Dug on my Commodore 64. Exactly. This isn't definitive because it's just Andy Walker's story, and it's not like he knows for certain that these guys went back and then did Dig Dug, but it's an interesting story, and it's very possible that the pit, this relatively obscure British game that did come out in North America via Centauri, may have been the inspiration for Dig Dug. At the very least, they're incredibly similar, and if this blow-up story is accurate, then, I mean, even the method of dealing with the enemies could have come out of this mistranslation, misunderstanding (laughs) of blowing up. I'm looking at The Pit right now. It's actually a pretty interesting game, and in some ways, I like some of the concept more than Dig Dug. You come down as a spaceship, you land, and you're trying to get to the very bottom of the map in order to get some fuel, and then you got to fight your way back up. There's a tank that rolls in from the right, that is slowly but surely shooting away at a mountain that's between your ship and it. Mm-hmm. So as it slowly eats away at that mountain, parts of the top falls down and then that gets eaten away. It's a very hard timer. You got to do something within this period of time or else you lose. And I can see a lot of very proto dig dug design here. You can dig up and destroy dirt. If you get underneath a rock, the rock falls down. Mm -hmm. If I didn't know better, I'd say that this was a direct predecessor to Dig Dug. I mean, it seems like it. And then when you throw in that story that Andy Walker tells, which is that he was talking about blowing up dragons and these Japanese developers took that literally as inflating them, which is a kind of strange... I mean, a lot of Japanese games can have some strange gameplay elements, but let's face it, that's a pretty strange way to defeat enemies. You don't see many games where you inflate your enemies to death, right? Not typically, no. You know, in addition to all of the similarities, which both you and I have discussed between the two games, the fact that Andy Walker claims he had this conversation that could have caused them to come up with this very, very weird and specific way of killing enemies. I mean, this could be the start of what became Dig Dug, but, you know, we don't have full perspective on that. They licensed the pit from the UK, and that did a little better. And then they also went to Atari, and basically Atari conned them into taking one of their losers, (laughs) a game called Tunnel Hunt. Tunnel Hunt is a game that had been in development forever and ever since the like late 1970s at Atari, and they kept tweaking it and kept tweaking it, and it never quite tested high enough. They pawned it off, first on Exidy and then on uh, Centauri. They also got another game from Tech on the Swimmer, but their output that year, it was just not as strong overall. I mean, they couldn't strike gold twice by getting the Japanese licenses. They were left with a couple of minor Japanese licenses that didn't really do anything. Their attempt to try to replicate their success from Japan with European games didn't really work. The Italian stuff just didn't work at all. The Pit probably sold around 2,000 units, which probably made it the best-selling game that the company had in 1982. You know, this tunnel hunt thing, if you were uh, taking some illicit substances, this is the game for you, because it is very trippy. Not only that, you get to take out TIE fighters. Yes. And TIE advances as you go around in this tunnel, and your brain has trouble 
conceiving of what the heck's going on because you're literally flying in this tunnel. There's these TIE fighters and TIE advances coming at you as it just does rainbow colors and it moves all over the screen. It really messes with your head. That's why Exidy called their version Vertigo. (laughs) I mean, that wasn't an accident. After that great year, $61.5 million in fiscal 81, and uh, a nice profit, $7.5 million, 1982, they're back down in the dumps a little bit again. Their sales are almost cut in half to $37.6 million. They're back to losing money again after one year of having a profit. They lost $2.9 million this year. Back down to selling just about 8,600 video games. There are a couple of things going on here. 1982 is when the market started to fall apart. About the middle of the year, game sales just kind of stopped. So that was part of it. We're starting to see this crash start to develop in the arcade market, which is completely different from the big, great crash that people talk about with the uh, VCS. So there's some of that going on, but they just don't have the same compelling product. I think that's in part what kind of spooks the Kaufmans into saying, okay, maybe video is not going to be as big as, as we thought it was going to be. Let's take some of the money we have made in video games and let's raise some additional capital and let's start diversifying out of video games. So as soon as they're in, they start getting out. And again, you know, with one of the first purchases being this outdoor sports. So that takes them through 82. And of course, now in 83, the entire market is falling apart. Centauri is also kind of fortunate in this time period because as the U.S. market starts to fall apart a little bit, It provides an entry point for some of the more successful of these smaller Japanese companies to start creating their own presence in the United States. We talked about this kind of in our Picking Up the Pieces episode. We did an episode on this kind of 83, 84, 85 period in the arcade in the U.S. A lot of this was based around introducing kits and conversions, which were cheaper, But it was just an opportunity for these Japanese companies to gain a stronger toehold as the big American factories were starting to have trouble. One of the companies that was very ambitious in this, in this time period, was Konami. We did an episode on Konami, so we're not going to really talk about the games in detail here because we've talked about them. You can see the games there. But Konami, which had founded an American subsidiary in 1982, but that subsidiary was basically just a sales licensing company. It wasn't meant to be a manufacturer. Konami sees an opportunity here to grow in the United States. So they start a very close alliance with Centauri. Centauri needs this because they're kind of in bad shape. Their 82 slate wasn't very good. They have some other games in 83 from other sources. They're still getting some take-on product like Guzzler and some uh, Shinnihan Kikaku product, like a strange driving game by the name of Munch Mobile. These companies aren't having hits, but Konami, Konami is a company that is growing. So they enter into a different kind of partnership than what we've seen before with other of these Japanese companies like SNK, like Take On, like Nichibitsu, like even the big boys like Namco. They have licensed games to companies like Centauri or like Bally Midway or like Atari or like Williams in the past. But there was really no indication to the American public that these were games from SNK or Take On or Irem, etc. Konami, what they do is they make a small investment in Centauri. They buy some of the stock because it's a public company. They enter into an agreement where Konami's games will be released under a joint Konami-Centauri brand. So it's Konami taking advantage of the weakness of the American market 
to start making its own name in the United States. But this is very good for Centauri as well, because Konami has a string of hits in this time period. Time Pilot, Gyrus, and most importantly, Track and Field and its sequel, Hypersports. Track and Field is one of the biggest hits of 1983. Uh, hits a little smaller in these days because the market's falling apart, but it does about ten to 15,000 units. That game comes out in the United States through Centauri, or rather through this Konami-Centauri joint label. The earlier games like Time Pilot, they were just on the Centauri label, but Track and Field specifically is Konami-Centauri, showing how the Japanese are having more of an influence, and it's, it's a major hit. Because of this Konami relationship, 1983 is great again. Revenues soar in 1983 to $141.8 million. Profit of $2.6 million. But, and this is important, even though the Konami deal is very helpful in that, most of that revenue actually came from outdoor sports. That outdoor wholesaler slash retailer that the company bought at the end of 1982. Even though the video game picture looks okay, it's not really video games that's driving the success of Centauri anymore. It's the other, completely unrelated aspects of the company. That doesn't mean that they might not necessarily be able to continue in video games, because the Konami deal has been very lucrative. I mean, that's been a success. But with the American companies continuing to weaken and the Japanese companies continuing to strengthen, Konami decides they don't need Centauri anymore. They end up pulling out. in 1984. They back out of their stock purchase in Centauri. They discontinue their licensing relationship with Centauri, and they end up buying the company Interlogic, a kit manufacturer, to be their new U.S. coin-op manufacturing operation. They bring it in-house because they've been so successful through track and field that they don't need Centauri anymore. They can do it on their own. And this is kind of the trend of these Japanese companies. They started out in these licensing deals at the very beginning of the 1980s that were uneven in favor of the American manufacturer. That's when Centauri was doing great. Then they progressed to the point where they were getting just enough leverage that they could have more equal partnerships with American companies in some cases. That's where we see the next phase of Centauri with this Konami-Centauri joint venture. But then, at the end of this period here, 83, 84, and 85, we're seeing the point where the American market has fallen so much and the Japanese companies that have had hits have had such big hits that they are taking control of their own destiny and no longer need the American companies anymore, which is, of course, how it it continues to be as the 1980s continue. So Centauri does continue to sell track and field and hypersports in 1984, but they really don't have any other video game prospects of any note. They go back to having a loss again in 1984. It's all up and down, up and down, up and down. The other parts of the business, like the shellfish business, you know, the seafood business and the outdoor recreation business are doing much better. They tried a Laserdisc game. It was another Konami game, Badlands. Of course, the Laserdisc ended up just being a passing fad, so that didn't do much for them. They get so desperate that they even decide that they're going to try to bypass distributors and sell directly to operators. They make this decision at the end of 1984. That didn't go over well with anybody. 
They had a sound argument for it. The sound argument was that now that the market is more of a kit market, that you don't really need the middleman anymore. You can sell direct. But of course, you know, the industry was very set in its ways and you couldn't get rid of the distributors that easily. The Kaufmans are expanding into these other areas. The seafood company that I mentioned, they actually bought that in 1984, just to put a date on it. They also buy a company involved in mobile and modular homes. Again, just completely other areas, just areas that they think will be successful. Because the video game thing seems to be in the doldrums and some of these other companies are doing better, they shut down the video game operation at the beginning of 1985. So Centauri doesn't go away at that point. Centauri, the company, lives on for a while through those other ventures that they had. That marks the end of Centauri as coin-operated game company, as video game company. Definitely not the kind of ending you would expect. It comes back to who the Kaufmans were. So many of these coin-op companies, they were founded by coin men, people with roots in the industry going way back. Even a company like Atari, which was not founded by coin men, was founded by people, you know, Nolan Bushnell specifically, even more so than Ted Dabney, his co-founder, who saw a future in video games specifically. I mean, these were people that were embedded in their industries. The Kaufmans were just opportunists. They would buy companies that they could get on the cheap. They would use their financial expertise and their economies of scale between their various companies to turn around the company that they bought. Then they would just keep chasing the latest thing that's going to do them well. They're they're not wedded to any one industry. So at, at the beginning of the 1980s, the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, Video games and coin-operated video games seemed like a wave of the future. It seemed like video games were going to be the entertainment product of the 1980s. By 1982, 1983, it looked like that was no longer going to be the case. For a very brief period of time, only lasting a couple of years, but for a very brief period of time, it was no longer the case. Video games were no longer going to be the future of entertainment. The Kaufmans, not being in any way particularly wedded to this industry, not having a special love for it, were just like, okay, then. We made some money here. We had our ups and downs. Now let's go do something else. And so, I mean, a surprising ending maybe in one sense, but when you think about who the people in charge who controlled this thing were, uh, you know, not so surprising in another sense, because it's like, okay, video's gone. Pack it up. Let's sell mobile homes now. Let's have some fun with that for a few years. See where that goes instead. Sold by your friendly neighborhood centurion. That's right. (laughs) Okay. Well, since we've made all these Rome jokes, that mean our next episode is about Rome? Uh, I think we already did a Civilization episode. Yeah, civilizing some guy named Sid Meier. (laughs) I don't really have enough to say about Rome Total War or Age of Empires. One of these days we should do Age of Empires, but not today. I don't think we're going to travel back to ancient Rome just now. I mean, it could be future Rome. (laughs) That's true. I suppose we do have to do something, don't we? Because we have this podcast thing, and and we keep putting out episodes for it. Why do you keep listening to us? It just makes us keep talking. (laughs) That's the danger, isn't it? That's always the danger. Well, Jeffrey, there's been a company that has been in the news a lot recently that I'm sure everyone has seen. A little company by the name of Activision Blizzard. 
It's had some issues related to some disturbing sexual harassment situations. It's been in the news for some unionizing because there's been uh, complaints about working conditions. And of course, it's in the news because the CEO of the company, uh, Bobby Kotick, decided that the best way to disentangle from all of these difficulties was to sell the company to Microsoft for an obscene amount of money. We do mean obscene. (laughs) We've talked about the founding of Activision in the early years of Activision. We've talked about the mediagenic years, the Bruce Davis years of Activision. It's probably time, especially with Activision so much in the news, to dip our toes a little bit into the Bobby Kotick years of Activision. Not all of it, not the whole grand piece of it all the way up to the present, It's too new. Not going to talk about Activision Blizzard, probably even, you know, not getting into that. But before Bobby Kotick was the most controversial executive running a major video game company, he was considered a wonder boy because he was young for an executive. So a boy is, is the right word, even though he wasn't literally a boy, that took a company that had completely failed and reinvented it and brought it back to success. I still have a lot of research to do on the Bobby Kotick era, and so I'm sure at some point in the future we'll revisit this and probably have even more revelations. But there's enough that we can at least give a broad overview of how Mediagenic was at the brink of bankruptcy, at the brink of ruin, and was bought by one uh, Bobby Kotick and partners and turned around and uh, started on a path to becoming the largest third-party publisher in the video game industry. It's an interesting story, even if it's a story that definitely has some controversial elements in in terms of business dealings, but uh, it's one that is certainly central to the way the video game industry is today, and and one that I think we can uh, cover in uh, some detail in uh, an episode or two following up on this. I'm trying to come up with some sort of funny quip here, but nothing coming to me. (laughs) So we're going to have to knuckle down, hug our Centaurians, and go, this Bobby Kotick guy... He's certainly going to make our active vision very interesting. I don't have anything better, kids. We will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.